Nat, weave me another. Better take it easy. Oh, don't worry about me. Just let me know when it's a quarter of six. Okay. Come on, Nat. Join me. One little jigger of dreams, huh? No, thanks. You don't approve of drinking? Not the way you drink. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we watched the winner of the 1945 awards, The Lost Weekend. And before we jump into anything else, I do just want to say that if you or someone you love has dealt with addiction or alcoholism, that some of this podcast might be a little triggering. So take that as you will. But I didn't like this movie. (laughs) I hated this movie and it made me feel like I've never met an alcoholic person in my life. Which I know for a fact to not be true. (laughs) Yeah. It is one of those addiction dramas that is so over the top about the experience of addiction that it no longer resonates with any human experience I've had around that thing. And in fact, my takeaway would be, I don't know if I am an alcoholic, but I have not been drinking for the past year because I was dealing with anxiety through drinking and I no longer find that experience at all enjoyable now that I know that about myself. I think that makes you definitely not an alcoholic. (laughs) If you were just like, hey, yeah, I'm doing this and it doesn't seem healthy. I'm just going to stop. Sure. But I mean, there was more to it than that. It was not the but like my general point is this is a movie about an addiction I have at times in my life worried that I have. And watching it gave me the experience of, oh, I'm definitely not an alcoholic, which doesn't seem to be the the reaction this film would want from people. (laughs) It doesn't seem like what you would want about a gripping addiction drama is, well, I don't have a problem, clearly. I don't know that you necessarily want a gripping addiction drama to make you nervous that you have an addiction, but... So one of the anecdotes about this film is that the liquor industry really did not want this film to come out and may or may not have offered $5 million to some gangster to burn the negative of it. (laughs) To which Billy Wilder, the director, said, if they'd offered me $5 million, I would have done it. (laughs) And watching it, I thought, well, I guess once it came out, they probably were fine. Because it does not portray alcohol as the problem. It does portray alcoholism as the problem. And that is what the prohibition movement missed, right? Was that you can take away the legality of alcohol and that won't keep alcoholics from drinking. (laughs) Or anybody for that matter. It does not come off as an anti-drinking film. It comes off as you have to be a complete and utter disaster of a human in order to have a drinking problem. Exactly. That's really what I was trying to get at, is that this is a movie that's supposed to be a portrait of, like, how alcoholics lie to themselves, but it's also a portrait of the man who is such an over-the-top alcoholic. It feels very easy to lie to yourself and go like, well, I'm not him. Right. Which seems... Antithetical? I I mean, the other thing that the Wikipedia page says about this movie is that Billy Wilder was not an alcoholic and sort of made it 
in order to understand Raymond Chandler, who he had worked with on Double Indemnity, who was an alcoholic. And this movie very much plays like somebody who cannot figure out alcoholism to save their life trying to dramatize it. Oh, it's worse than that. It's that he made this film to try to explain Raymond Chandler to himself. Right. Which, my God, the stones on Billy Wilder to be like, hey, this is an experience I haven't had at all, but I'm going to make a whole film about it to explain you to yourself. And look, this movie is about this guy hitting rock bottom. It is the worst weekend. It is the weekend that convinces him in the last 30 seconds of the film that he's going to sober up. In multiple AA meetings, this is the really harrowing part that people talk about when they give their story and it helps everybody feel like, oh, okay, actually somebody has been where I've been. Maybe not the exact same circumstances, but somebody has been in a really bad position the way that I have been and look, now they're sitting here sober. But the way that it is framed is like a 30s pulp horror film. It is like something that I expect to star Bella Lugosi <laughs> The music contributes to it more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, that is the screen test of time thing we have to talk about, is that this movie is soundtracked largely by theremin. And so every time he has a harrowing alcoholic experience, it sounds like he's going to be attacked by the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And the lighting and the camera angles and everything are a very horror movie and not in a way that gives you the horrors of alcoholism, but in a way that turns it into a drive-in popcorn flick of a horror movie. <laughs> I mean, one of... It's hard for me to say that this is one of my favorite movies. I think one of the best movies I've ever seen, though I have not seen it since I saw it in the theater, is Requiem for a Dream, which is unquestionably horrific. It is an addiction drama, but I think of it as being a horror movie. But it is a horror movie because it shows the extremes of addiction in a way that is very expressionistic, in a way that is very... I don't even know if over the top is the right phrase, but it's not a one-to-one -one what you see when you know someone who has an addiction, right? There's, like, the fridge attacks the mom when she gets hooked on speed, which is not a thing that literally happens, <laughs> So I'm not saying that it needs to be more realistic. It's just the tone is wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is that the tone is promising a movie of realism. But the most interesting parts of this movie are when it decides to do a visual flourish that does not really match up with reality. It's just that the movie, I think, thinks that's reality. Like the mouse and the bat part? Yeah. <laughs> the very strange hallucination of a mouse and a bat, which is like, one, not super duper terrifying. Two, seems mostly to be like a metaphor. And three, does not seem to be like a clear metaphor. Right. If it is a metaphor, for what is it a metaphor? <laughs> mm-hmm. And if it's not a metaphor, why does he find it that terrifying? I mean, I suppose if you are at the point of delirium tremens where you're hallucinating, anything would be terrifying. But it feels like a moment out of a cheesy 30s adaptation of Dracula. It feels like 
criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot, and that's why Batman dresses up like a bat. <laughs> like, it feels like the reaction Batman expects to someone seeing a bat. Yeah. We also haven't talked about the central performance of this film, um, which I would argue is not very good. <laughs> oh, no, I don't think so at all. Not very good is generous. <laughs> If anything in this film is over the top, it is his performance. You know, I've talked about this before on the podcast, that one of the things that really bugs me is when people play drunk in films or in theater or whatever, and it's so big, whereas if you're actually drunk, you're usually trying to hide it. Yeah. Or you're trying to compensate in some way. So if you're slurring your words, like, you might hit your T's a little bit harder <laughs> to try to be like, no, I'm articulating whatever it is I'm saying. But he is an alcoholic who is in no way trying to hide the fact that he is an alcoholic, which is an unusual situation, <laughs> to say the least. Even more unusual than that, because none of his physicality and none of his way of playing it is he's not trying to not play it drunk he's playing it as an insane over-the-top drunk who just continually insists i'm not drunk like i'm not an alcoholic to everyone while being drunk at them or switches five minutes later to yeah i'm a drunk but i'm allowed to be or whatever or i don't care i'm just gonna be one yeah which is a weird turn on a dime situation that happens over and over and over again. Like when he goes into the bar and the bartender says, you know, your brother told me not to serve you, basically. And instead of leaving and going to another bar, he's just like, yeah, well, that's because I'm a drunk. Anyway, pour me a drink. Yeah, we need to go into that fucking bartender for a while. But let's discuss the plot, because Don Burnham is an alcoholic novelist who goes on a weekend bender, and then finally, after almost killing himself Monday morning, his girlfriend talks him into writing a gripping addiction drama to deal with his alcoholism. That's the entire movie. Right. That's why we haven't talked about the plot in 15 minutes of talking about this movie, is because there's incidents in this movie, but... From two minutes in, you know everything that happens in this movie. I mean, the title gives it away once you're two minutes in. The, oh, okay, this is the weekend where he just goes on a bender. Got it. It's not that there aren't specifics to the weekend. It is that all of the specifics feel unimportant because they feel like he's hitting his marks. Like they feel like, oh, this is the part where... You don't actually care very much what happens to this guy because he's just kind of a drunk asshole. He's also not a very good writer. He does really over-the-top drunk monologues about the poetry of language or whatever when he's drunk. But, like, he doesn't seem very talented. Everybody just keeps insisting he's a talented writer. But when you listen to his drunk monologues, you're like, God, this guy's insufferable. I would never want to read his novel. Well, and when he goes off at the end about how he was so brilliant when he was in college, basically the last time he got published was 19. Yeah. <laughs> as far as we know. And then the rest of the time, his brother has just been putting him up and covering for him. I don't say that to be like he should be a more talented writer for this movie to work. 
but the whole movie sort of turns out to be the novel he is writing. And, like, weirdly that works because this movie is overwritten, <laughs> doesn't really say what it is trying to say, and doesn't really make you feel any empathy for the protagonist. And in that way, it does seem like the exact novel that Don Burnham would write. It just doesn't seem like the kind of novel that it was based on. Right. I mean, here's the thing. People being alcoholic and ruining all of their relationships and making themselves and other people suffer is tragic regardless of whether or not the person has talent. So why focus on this so much in the film? Like, he could have been an insurance salesman, and it's still really sad because he goes around hurting a lot of people and himself. I don't know why I picked insurance salesman. Well, I do. I just finished editing the double indemnity episode. <laughs> right, but it doesn't really factor into the plot that he's a writer, except in that very last scene. And that very last scene doesn't work very well, because when he starts narrating the book, you do sort of think, that this is bad writing. Like, I have notes. Right. Which is maybe just me being an asshole, but when you build your entire movie around a pop song, that song better be fucking good, right? Yeah. And so if you're building your entire movie up to, like, the bit of writing that gets this guy's head straight and having it be just like, my mind was on the bottle hanging six feet outside my window. Yeah, okay. Like, that's, yeah. That's great, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. Did you watch Queen's Gambit? No, I want to. It's absolutely a when is the right time to watch Queen's Gambit thing. But like, I really want to. But I have not. So none of this is going to be spoilers for you or anyone listening to this who hasn't watched it yet. But the protagonist of Queen's Gambit is a brilliant chess player and an addict, right? Mm-hmm. They manage to balance those things in a way where you understand how the two inform one another, and that doesn't happen in The Lost Weekend. Yeah, everyone's got a different relationship to their writing, and I actually think it is a cliche that is dangerous in its own right. But it is very strange in this movie that being an alcoholic makes him feel the, the sort of pressure to write, the pressure of the blank page, more intensely. Because the cliche is always that, like, drinking helps you release that, right? That, like, he would need to drink to be a writer is the cliched setup here that it kind of makes more sense. And instead... Again, this is based on a novel that's based on a true story of a writer who is an alcoholic. And in that sense, it feels like, oh, I guess there's something lived in here. But it doesn't feel lived in because of the performances and because of just the over-the-top everything of this movie. So instead, it just feels like this incredibly strange choice to have him go like, I'd be a writer, but this drunk guy keeps getting in my way. Yeah, you're the drunk guy. Like, why is anyone humoring his there are two me's thing for vast portions of this movie? I mean, I feel like his girlfriend yeah. is humoring it because it is a way that she can talk to him about it and then can say, look, actually, they're the same person. That you have to stop making these 
separations and this designation and realize that they're both you and that the drunk you can't just shoot the writer you. Yeah. Because he does attempt sort of to kill himself at the end. Right. He's getting ready. He's writing the letter. He has a gun. And then she comes over. Yeah, this movie's not good. I don't know that I have a whole lot to say about it. I mean, the thing is, addiction dramas are almost guaranteed to get you some kind of critical recognition because for whatever reason, critics love to watch actors put themselves through this. It's actually one of the things that I like so much about Queen's Gambit is that it treats it in a way where like addiction is kind of boring (laughs) and it's not so glamorous and then you go into the gutter which is the usual trajectory right of like oh we were just partying and everything was fabulous and then i end up waking up in a flop house with no money (laughs) and everything is bad actually i mean this is part of what does make this movie different from most addiction dramas is we don't see the beginning of it the flashback that begins telling the story that is going to be his novel which is something that happened to him He's already drinking too much and thinking too much about alcohol and is at the opera and they're toasting on stage and all he can think about is the bottle that he has in his coat pocket at the coat check. And that's as far back in time as we go. (laughs) So it never really looks glamorous, but the horror part of it is always present. And most of the time being an addict is, it's just not that exciting. (laughs) Right. And so you would think, well, then you want to be following the people where their lives are more dramatically interesting, like the girlfriend, like the brother, people whose life has a little bit more character to it, a little bit more variety to it than just sitting in this story of addiction. I mean, this is the thing. When you are capital I important, as this movie is, it kind of makes you critically bulletproof in this way that I think makes bad art (laughs) often. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right at the tail end of college, I talked two of my teachers into letting me do a creative writing assignment for the final paper of two of my classes. And I got a B on both of those assignments, and I should have gotten a lower grade. (laughs) Because I realized in retrospect that their resistance to that and the reason you don't do that is that you aren't really allowed to go, this is bad writing. You're a bad writer. So the worst they could do is like, ah, this, I don't, didn't be. And that's sort of how I feel trying to talk shit about this movie is just like, ah, this doesn't work. Ah, it's a B. Ah, Don't drink to excess and kill yourself. Bye. Yeah, I definitely think don't drink to excess and don't kill yourself are solid messages. (laughs) Those are solid messages, period. They're also ones that people just already know. So if you're going to make a movie where those are the messages, the movie better be really damn good. It's kind of like with, I know we always pick Green Book as the movie to talk shit about for this. The moral of Green Book is racism is bad, right? Right. 
we know that. Can we make a movie that is compelling, interesting, and also manages to actually explore that instead of just being completely surface level about it? Right. There is a potential good movie here. And I also do think that there's kind of a screen test of time learning experience to the way this movie is bad. I mean, for one thing, I can't really blame it for the theremin soundtrack just aging terribly. I mean, is that just because our experience with theremins now as people who live in 2021 is Star Trek and then, like, other spooky things? I really do think so, specifically because even in 1945, people found the central performance way over the top to the degree that it was kind of laughed at in test screenings until the soundtrack got added in and it clicked into place. And it's like, oh, well, the thing that clicked it into place now makes you laugh at it more. Like, that's why this movie doesn't work at all in 2021. The cultural associations we have are now not, oh, this sounds so weird and so strange and disquieting. It's, oh, no, we're watching Forbidden Planet and the energy being is coming after Leslie Nielsen. (laughs) Right, yeah, exactly. The sound of addiction now is vaguely discordant music that's way too loud, I feel like. Or Clint Mansell played by Kronos Quartet. Yeah. It's much more frantic and a lot less... Ooh. Right. It's about overwhelming, no matter what it is. And this is about, like, oh, it's it's unusual, this experience... And that doesn't really work. I mean, I think this movie does do some interesting stuff direction-wise, cinematography-wise. This movie invented the shot of someone walking straight toward the camera as time passes in a daze. And it's like, oh, well, that's not going to work anymore because that's such a cliche. I mean, that's a thing that they do on... 23 minute comedy television shows now it's such a cliche (laughs) right the problem with this movie is this entire movie is now that montage right in modern filmmaking because we do know that the minute to minute experience of addiction is kind of boring from a dramatic perspective we shorthand it as that and then have people Either portray it artistically as not the actual physical reality of just a guy stumbling around and being miserable, or we have someone else be the point of view character so that we're watching their reaction to this kind of steady miserableness. Uh, This is like an hour and 30 minutes of this movie are what we would think of as just that walking toward the camera in a day's montage that we would wrap all of that up in a tidy montage and be done with it the thing that was really missing to go back to them being a writer and how that doesn't really feel like we're shown that in any way that we're just told that oh well he's a writer i guess other than this typewriter that he keeps trying to hawk and not seeing how this began or how it got worse and what the progression of his addiction was. In A Star is Born, we saw that so much more clearly, even though when we first met Frederick March's character, he was already clearly an alcoholic. (laughs) He just was charming and he was functioning, quote unquote. 
And then it spiraled out of control, right? Yeah. And this is just like, he is a completely miserable drunk from as far as we know. Like, he's always just been utterly miserable and wasn't terribly charming. The meet cute with the woman who eventually becomes his girlfriend. He's not even charming in that. (laughs) No, I think that's the thing that I'm trying to get at when I say it's bad that he's a bad writer in this. Everyone treats him Like, he is a kind of charming, highly functional alcoholic, but he's not. No, (laughs) he's not getting anything done. He's not publishing anything. Frederick March's character in A Star is Born is starring in films. It kind of either needs to be a movie where he is a charming, high-functioning alcoholic, except when he isn't, which is... All of them, yeah. ...how that goes. Or there's a descent, functioning to non-functioning or at least people need to not treat him like in that first scene he goes to the bar and the bartender goes like your brother said not to serve you because you're an alcoholic and he goes well i have five dollars what do you think about that and the guy's like okay and you're like why the fuck is this guy giving this dude booze like what is wrong with this bartender is what i end up thinking there's also the part later on where he's like telling the bartender his life story with the thinnest veneer of this is this novel I want to write, but it's fucking so clearly about him that when the bartender goes, oh, I know how it ends, the guy gets a gun and he puts it up to his temple and shoots himself. You're like, Jesus Christ, dude, what is wrong with you? Who would say that? Hey, man, maybe, uh, you know what? Maybe, why don't you have a glass of water? Yeah. <laughs> Can I make you a cup of coffee? These are real things that bartenders do. And there's a shot where after he gets his first drink of whiskey, he tells the bartender not to wipe up when he takes the empty glass away because he wants the ring to stay there from the condensation. And then the next scene starts with there being 20 rings on the bar. And I'm thinking the guy didn't want to serve him in the first place. But okay, maybe he got kind of strong-armed into it or he felt bad for him or whatever. But bartenders cut people off all the time. And that's not a new phenomenon. (laughs) And that's one of the ways that this movie is like, oh, well, he's so charming that he's been able to get through life like this. Well, then I want to watch that part of his life. Because at this point in his life where the movie has started, everyone around him knows he's an alcoholic. He's apparently gone on some, like, previous bender, just immediately previous to the start of the film. Because he, like, has to get out of town with his brother. Because everyone around him now knows that, oh, he's the neighborhood drunk. That's never really cleared up. It's weird that this movie progresses non-linearly because you're in the present and he's a drunk who's just gone on a bender. And then you are thinking about the future being the time that this film takes place and he's a drunk going on a bender. And then you go to the flashback and he's a drunk going on a bender. There's no actual difference at any point in the timeline, which makes when it jumps time deeply confusing. That is definitely true. I had a few times where I had to go back because I thought, wait a minute, how are we here now? And I think that's also really down to the editing. Plot-wise, it makes it not a good plot, but the editing also isn't very good. This is not just not a good movie. <laughs> yeah, it's just not a good movie. 
I think I've talked about it so much because I've been debating with myself whether it's just that the central performance is bad or whether this whole thing is just kind of a disaster. And I think the whole thing's just kind of a disaster. I think that it just was never going to age well. We have just figured out don't make addiction dramas like this in the intervening years because it just has tons and tons of problems in the way it's trying to tell this story. Right, but we had already had an Oscar-nominated, Best Picture-nominated film that portrays addiction in a much more compelling, harrowing, realistic, everything that you want from an addiction drama A Star is Born has over The Lost Weekend, even though A Star is Born can be super melodramatic at times. I was about to say, he walks into the sea to kill himself. Yeah. I I agree with you. You're not wrong. (laughs) It is more realistic than this movie, but like... Well, and it demonstrates what happens to this person's relationships and what happens to them professionally and how their family falls apart and the consequences are there. Whereas in this, like you were saying, he is known as the neighborhood drunk, but there seems to be absolutely nothing that comes of that other than... The liquor store owner and the bartender will tell him to his face that the brother said, you can't have any booze, and an old lady whispers behind his back. But it's not like people are shuffling their kid to the other side of the street if he walks by or something. Right. You know, I'm not saying that people should stigmatize addiction that way. I'm just saying that happens. That people lose friends and they lose jobs and they lose partners. And that is the thing that you put in an addiction drama that makes you go, oh, okay, actually, this is a really terrifying thing. Not, I had a hallucination. There was a mouse trying to come through the wall and then a bat flew in the window and killed it in the wall. That's not the frightening thing about addiction. (laughs) That is the central problem with this movie. I understand from 1945 why you would watch A Star is Born and go like, oh, well, see, that is just showing addiction from the outside. Like, you're not really following him. You're just seeing alcoholism's effect on other people. What we're going to do is a gritty drama set within being an alcoholic. And I think we figure out not to do that. Movies about addiction either, like you say, have some sort of artistic portrayal of that rather than trying to portray it super realistically, or you are watching the effects on family. Like, your point of view character isn't necessarily the addict, because otherwise you end up with all of the problems this movie has. It ends up feeling weirdly samey. Because the experience of going on a bender is you're drunk all the time. And no amount of theremin music is going to make it exciting. I can see why you would think this would be a formula for a good movie. I can almost see why the Academy would talk itself into believing it was a good movie. I mean, they gave it the Oscar. Right. No, I see that they did do that. I can almost see why they did that. Okay. (laughs) They're clearly wrong. Clearly they're wrong. It's insane that this movie swept, that it's best picture, best director, best actor, best screenplay. I could maybe give you director just because Billy Wilder's really taken some big swings here, but also those big swings don't fucking work. Here's the thing. The two films that we've watched so far for 1945, Anchors Away and Mildred Pierce, neither of them were terribly great. I mean, Anchors Away is great in its (laughs) 
disjointed and confusing and confuddled way. And that's fine. But, you know, is it a masterpiece of film? Not really. And Mildred Pierce is riddled with problems. But by comparison, they're both way better than this movie. Yeah. I Looking at the other nominees, this is the only important movie. Like, capital I, important. Mildred Pierce kinda, sorta. Bells of St. Mary's is a sequel to Going My Way. Which, why? <laughs> right. Spellbound's an Alfred Hitchcock movie, so I'm looking forward to watching it. But it's also an Alfred Hitchcock movie, so the Academy's like, oh, this is just a thriller. It's not, like, important. It's not trying to say something with the form. So in a weak year, I guess this wins out. Like, bad message movie is better than a bunch of good to mediocre movies and genres the Academy doesn't really like that much. But God, this movie's bad. And honestly doesn't do much for the message it's trying to send. We should rate this movie because we've talked about it more than enough. Ugh. The one... I hated this movie. It took me like five hours to watch it. And it's 101 minutes long. Yeah, it really is interminable. I'm weirdly glad you also found it impossible to watch this. I literally started watching YouTube videos while this was still going. (laughs) During the last like 30 minutes, I like... I solved a Rubik's Cube for the first time during this movie. (laughs) So, you know, like, there you go. (laughs) I was playing a game on my phone, and then I was like, that's actually leaving too much of my brain to process this movie. Let's see what YouTube has to show me. Genuinely, the only thing that fascinates your brain about this movie is looking up and trying to figure out when in the timeline something is supposed to be. Because every scene feels the fucking same. It's a bad movie. I want to give it a two because it's not out and out racist, but I also don't want to give it a two because it's not a movie. All I could think of is the specific version of character walking toward the camera in a daze as time passes is from The Simpsons when Bart goes on a bender from drinking too many Slurpees and like sees a bunch of signs in Capital City. Oh, yeah. That's what this movie is. This entire movie is that five seconds of The Simpsons. It's an hour and 40 minute long montage. So yeah, one, don't watch this movie. Almost watch it because it's it's almost bad enough to be like, watch it because it's bad. But it isn't quite reefer madness even. Like it's not quite that bad of an addiction drama. No, because everything that happens in it could feasibly happen. It's just that it all happens on the same weekend and the way that it is portrayed that seems improbable, right? Like, Reefer Madness is ridiculous. I would say, you know, if you want to watch a a fun, quote-unquote, addiction drama, I think Trainspotting nails that and manages to walk the line between the sort of hilarious monotony of being an addict and the actual tangible repercussions of what happens to people's lives and that people die and people get sick and people lose things. I think Trainspotting is actually, is it a drama? (laughs) 
It's an addiction dramedy, I guess. Weirdly, it is one of those movies where it's like two spoons of sugar to actually be way darker than this movie in practice. Oh, yeah, it's dark as hell. <laughs> way worse things happen to the protagonist of Train Spotting than happen to Don Burnham in this film. Which is another thing about this film is that the turn from alcoholism feels weirdly unearned at the end. I feel like he's going to drink again. Because it doesn't really feel like the thing that would pull him out of it. Well, and also his performance isn't convincing. Right. Because it's the same exact performance we had at the very beginning where he says, oh, yeah, I haven't touched the stuff in six weeks. Where he's like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to drink again. Yeah. And that's sounded this not being a good performance. I don't care what the Academy said. They were wrong. It's a bad performance. <laughs> it's a bad performance. And the original test audience, I think, was right. <laughs> I agree. I think the original test audience was right. And Billy Wilder did enough like song and dance shit, did enough like weird shots and weird stuff and big flashy things that it kind of papered over that like this just didn't work. Nope. Like it had a bad central performance and doesn't really understand alcoholism. One is perfectly fair. Don't watch this movie. It's not even a fun 40s addiction drama. It's just it's just a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale for people who are addicted to making addiction dramas. Don't make these mistakes. Don't make this movie about alcoholism. Uh, yeah, that's that. Uh, and and don't make a movie about alcoholism to show your alcoholic friend themselves. Because my God, the absolute narcissism of that decision i'm not sure the pronoun there refers to chandler and not wilder in the sentence wilder made the film in part to try to explain chandler to himself i think the himself is wilder and not chandler which is still a shitty thing to do and still explains why this movie is bad but is less shitty than making an entire film and going see that's you that's what you're like <laughs> that's fair and you maybe are right. I just took it as like, oh my god, just the audacity. But also, I'm going to work through your addiction by making this movie is also pretty audacious. Yeah. Just just less. Yeah. Yeah, don't watch this movie. Next week, it's the sequel to Going My Way. Okay, I'm, I'm a little confused by this year's nominees, only because the U.S. release dates versus the just original release dates are wild for this year. Everything has different release dates. Okay, so it's Going My Way, Going My Way's sequel, The Bells of St. Mary's, where this time there's a cool nun. <laughs> but we still have Father O'Malley, don't worry. We get to see what he's been up to. <laughs> right. This is, I guess, his next assignment. You know, he got the assignment at the end of going my way to go to another church. So I guess this is it. Yeah. Is this the only two or do, this, do they keep doing these? Um, oh, God, I don't know. Like there were four Three Smart Girls movies and none of the other ones got nominated for Best Picture. So it's kind of wild to me that the second Father O'Malley movie made it. I mean, maybe they just started the TV show soon enough afterward that they didn't feel the need to make any more films. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, no, the, the TV show didn't happen until the 60s. Yeah. The early 60s. So I guess not. I don't know if they made any more. But as far as the timeline for when movies were released, I'm doing it by the first US wide release, if that 
falls within the year, if that makes sense. That's why I had Bells of St. Mary's before Spellbound. I think we cheated this once on my account for Citizen Kane and then learned our lesson (laughs) because we then watched eight bad movies in a row. Right. (laughs) After Citizen Kane. But that's why I was confused about it. And I think that ruling makes perfect sense to me. And Bells of St. Mary's uh, sequel... No, Bells of St. Mary's is the sequel. They're both so generically (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, tune in next week to see if this one is any better than going my way. Yeah, maybe it'll be like a little better than Aggressively Fine. Like, pretty okay. It does have Ingrid Bergman in it. It is the exact same number of minutes, though, which is wild. (laughs) Yeah. Which, in the case of going my way, was too long plus six minutes (laughs) and until then this wasn't a movie this was a shit show this got edited down to be like a 15 minute film strip they showed to people in the 50s right like it must have been yeah whatever like the proto version of dare is yeah Mm mm-hmm yeah they showed this in schools yeah and that version i'm just gonna say it vastly superior some weirdo anti-alcohol guy editing the film strips of this down to 15 minutes i'm just gonna say full stop probably made a more entertaining film than this out of this footage (laughs) i'd agree with that yeah bye everybody (laughs) goodbye just happen to walk in on this. Now, if you know what's good for you, you'll turn around and walk out again and walk fast and don't turn back.